0: Go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to continue studying some of the Apostle Paul's writings. Now, oftentimes when we study the Apostle Paul, we think of grand ideas. We think of big thoughts. We think of the theological Paul. Man, there is hands all over the place reaching out with that money. That's great. Paul will talk about justification by faith. He'll talk about wrestling with the law of Moses and God's promises through Jesus. He'll, he'll talk about the adoption theory and the atonement theory and the universality of sin and the need for a savior and sorting through spiritual gifts and how they're used in the church and resurrection bodies versus our earthly bodies and the supremacy of Christ. And through all of this, we oftentimes take weeks, thank you, weeks to try and wrap our minds around all those big ideas. We wrestle, we pray, we preach, we study, we argue, we start all over again, and oftentimes we leave barely scratching the surface, and even more times than that, we leave scratching our heads. What did he mean by that? Today, we get to a passage in Paul's writings that is the opposite. It is very understandable, super practical, and we get to a part that I believe really, really fits with a day like today, Mother's Day. I want to pray, and then we will jump in. Uh, Lord God, thank you for an opportunity to spend time in your Word to us. Uh, thank you that it displays your heart for us. And I pray that this morning we would hear that heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It used to be, on Mother's Day, well, maybe it still happens, um, families gather, right? And oftentimes, families gather in the morning and they say to Mom, Mom, what do you want to do today today? It's like the only day of the year mom gets asked that. (laughs) Yes. What do you want to do? And moms usually have two responses. The first is this. I want us all to go to church together. I want us to do church together today. And the second response is, after that, I don't care. As long as we just get along. Not a single amen for that? (laughs) I'm going to ask for one later too, but thank you. Okay, Two responses, let's do church together today and let's all get along. Now whether moms know it or not, those are theologically rich statements, desires, and they're based out of scripture. The first is this, the request to go to church together or to do church together as I like to say. You all know what church is, right? Yes, Oh, we're doing part of church right now. The corporate gathered time where we stand, sit, sing, pass a plate, listen listen to somebody talk, that is all part of church. But that's not nearly all of church. You guys are church. The people of God are church. Paul writes about that in some of his more theologically rich stuff. So here's some things from his letters, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. Romans 12, verse 5. So it is with Christ's body. We are many parts, but one body, and we belong to each other. 1 Corinthians 12 says something similar, as does Colossians 3, verse 6. This is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe in the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. Now, we could We should take these verses to mean that church is more than what we do from 9.31 till 10.46 on a Sunday morning. Moms all over the place are thinking, that's right. Church is what we do when we do life together. And oftentimes moms, especially on Mother's Days, are thinking, man, I wish we could do more of church, more life together with our families. The ones that we've tried raising up in the Lord and some have stayed and some have wandered and we just really wish we could do church together. Some mom in here is thinking amen. And go ahead and say it out loud. Thank you, Carly. Let's do church together, mom says. And then let's get along. Let's all get along. We all have the stories of family gatherings gone bad. You know it's going to be bad right from the beginning when it just feels like everybody's walking on eggshells. The comment from one sibling to another sibling just adds to already festering issues that are going on deep within the surface, and you can see one sibling's blood begin to boil, and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter until that other sibling explodes during dinner, marches off yelling something about the other one, the, the spouse follows, and the kids are left there leaving con, looking confused and bewildered, and what just happened? Okay, maybe only some of us know those stories. Others have heard of them. Moms want us to get along. And here's where we get super practical with Paul's letters. He writes about this. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, Never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as you would your own father. Talk to younger men as you would your own brothers. Treat older women as you would your mother, and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sister's. Let's all get along. Well, we've got to remember two things as we move forward from here. The first is this. Paul was writing a letter to a young man named Timothy who was leading a church. Now, Timothy was a young guy in charge of a church that would have had all ages of people. So he would have needed to be reminded of this. Hey, Timothy, there's going to be older men in your congregation. Treat them respectfully. Just because you're the head Fred, just because you're the senior pastor, doesn't mean you can treat them poorly. And he'd say, Timothy, to the older women, treat them like you would your mom. I've seen enough people today to where I know just saying that wouldn't hold sway. There's maybe less of the respect for the parent figure than there used to be. Back here when, when Paul wrote this, this was one of the big Ten Commandments that everybody followed. Honor your mother and father. So for him to say this, it would have held serious weight. Maybe less so today. One author writes, To age, there must always be given the respect and the affection which are due to those who have lived long and fared upon the pathway of life and experience. Now, Aristotle, you heard of him? In his key work on ethics, he writes this, To all older persons, one should give honor appropriate to their age by rising up to receive them, by finding seats for them, and so on. So Paul tells Timothy, show the elders the honor and respect they deserve. And now he moves to the youngers. Timothy, show the, treat the younger men like you would your brothers. Again, today, maybe brothers don't always get along, but he's telling them, look, these guys are brothers in Christ. They have an equal share in the inheritance promised them by the Father. So treat them like those type of brothers. And he says, Timothy Treat the young women like your sisters. I love how he says this. Treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. Purity. That's a specific reference. Paul is saying, look, Timothy, you're a young guy, and there's going to be young women in your church who you have to pastor. You're going to be a spiritual leader to them. Pray for them. They're going to come, and they're going to share their hurts, their pains, their struggles. You're going to lead them and there's a real good chance they're going to be vulnerable with you. And as a young man, Timothy, you need to be aware that that's a risk for you. Don't wander down the wrong path. So, boy, you better treat them with all purity, Paul tells Timothy. There was a commentator from the 1950s that writes this about this purity. He says, There must be fellowship of mind and heart between Christ's people, which is cleansed of lust and rendered secure by the highest kind of mutual love. So Paul begins, Timothy, let's all get along in a Christ-like and appropriate way. I said there's two things we needed to remember as we move forward. One, this is a letter to Timothy. But two, we also need to know that this is a letter Paul knew would be read to everybody. So he's giving these instructions to the entire church. Let's all get along. All. And he broadens this. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we see the church in in its beginning stages becoming the church. When those passages talk about everybody selling their belongings and caring for everyone the way that they did. It was their way of taking care of extended family. The early church did their best to live as extended family. Now, this meant more than just mom, dad, sisters, and brothers. It also meant slaves. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. All slaves should show full respect for their masters, so they will not bring shame on them or shame on the name of God and His teachings. If the masters are believers, that's no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. We hear the term slave and we think of a movie like Amistad. We think of the slave trade. We think of the South not too many generations back. What we've got to remember is that when Paul mentions slaves, oftentimes these were people who, in a very real way, were almost adopted into the family. It was a close knit relationship, not the domineering boss subordinate type of relationship we think of when we think of slaves. I think of two people Rosa and Jose. These are people who have worked for my wife's grandparents down in Southern California for years upon years upon years. They bring presents when there is a a birthday in the family, and they receive presents. They bring meals when somebody's sick, and they're given meals when they are sick. They stand at the graveside and weep when loved ones are buried because they know this is family. That's the type of relationship Paul was mentioning when he talked about slaves in here. So Paul's advice to these type of workers, these type of extended family is, hey, guard and protect, care for the extended family. So far, so good. Yes? Yes? Hey, I've talked about the mom's desires to go to church, to do church together, and to all get along. Now, whether they'd say it or not, there's a third desire that moms have. and most of the time, they don't say it. But if they were to be asked or pushed, they ultimately would say, Look, when when all is said and done, I want to be taken care of. I want to make sure I'm going to be okay. Some future Mother's Day when my husband's not here, when my kids aren't here. I want to know I'm okay. Moms may not say that, but they feel that. Am I right? Moms just nod if, if that's... Amen. Okay, we got an amen. Carly is my token amen this morning. Give me five. Paul addresses this third concern too in a lengthy portion. First Timothy 5 verse 3 to 16. And I'm going to read the whole thing so you can follow along. Paul says, take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now, a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day, asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead even while she lives. Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. Verse 8. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those who are in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. A widow who was put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well-respected by everyone because of the good deeds she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served others, other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? Verse 11, the younger widows should not, should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they're on this list... They will learn to be lazy and spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business, and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children, and take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them. For I am afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. Verse 16. If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. I could show you countless verses in the Old and New Testament about God's heart for the widow, but you know this. It's interesting, as we've studied uh, 1 Timothy and Titus, we've looked at the roles and responsibilities of elders, of, of leaders in the church. What was the first role of an appointed leader in the church? Anybody know? Was it setting up a prayer meeting? no. Was it making sure the worship set matched what the pastor was preaching on? No. Was it setting up the car rentals and the hotel reservations for Paul and Barnabas as they went on their missionary journeys? No. The first charged job for a leader in the church was to care for the widow. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. That's the very first job. Paul knew God's heart. So he spent time emphasizing this. Now, widows, back then, could have become widows in three different ways. The first, their husband could have passed. This is is the way we are most uh, familiar with. But other ways also happened back then. Second way, a man, before coming to Christ, who was a polygamist, who had several wives, could have come to Christ and decided, you know what, I should only have one wife. So he'd pick one and he'd leave the others behind. They would have been considered widows. Third way. A woman, married, okay, comes to Christ, comes to faith in Christ. Her family doesn't, so they shun her. They kick her out. There goes all her future support, all her future care. She would be designated as a widow. Paul says, take care of these. And I'm going to help you by setting up some very practical guidelines as to how you do that. First, he says, if anyone else can care for the widow... Let them do it. Anybody else? Especially family. Chapter 5, verse 4. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. And verse 16, same chapter. If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. Paul says if somebody has family, make sure they're taking care of the widow because this is a display of godliness. Caring for your widowed mom is holiness in action, Paul says. Holiness in action. Now Jesus spoke quite pointedly on this matter as he was addressing the religious elite of the day. You can just listen to Matthew 15. It says, Some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. They thought it was a simple question. Jesus turns it on them. Jesus replied, Why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents. So you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote that these people honoring with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. It sounds like Jesus is saying, look, you can't come to church, raise your hands and worship, put money in the plate, and act like you're worshiping if you're not taking care of the people in your lives that God has called you to take care of. Otherwise, you do that, it's a farce. That's a hard word. Paul tells The family. Take care of the widows in your life. Verse 8. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Harsh words, but true. So if there's family, Paul says, guideline number one, you guys make sure you take care of the widows. If there's no other family, Paul says, here's a second set of guidelines. Widows, your past and your present must show evidence of you deserving to be cared for by the church. That's pretty bold. Your past and your present must show evidence of you deserving to be cared for by the church. Looking at their past, verses 9 and 10. A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well-respected by everyone because of the good deeds she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers? Has she served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? It's quite the list. Now, it starts off with she must be at least 60 years old. We may think, huh, that's odd. Isn't retirement age 62? Not anymore. Not anymore. It's bumped up, right? 67. 67. Back then, 60 was like the age. Plato, not Plato that you play with, kids, but the philosopher named Plato, in his picture and plan for the ideal state, held that 60 was the right age for men and women to become priests and priestesses. Eastern religions regard 60 as the right age to retire from normal activities in order to engage in a life of contemplation, in order to engage in a life of Faith. Age 60 meant something. But it wasn't just survive until you get to 60 and then we'll take care of you. I mean, Paul laid it out. This is going to be quite the interview process. Hey, were you faithful to your husband? Did you do good works? Did you raise your children well? Were you hospitable to strangers? Did you serve other believers? I like what it says in a lot of your translations. Have you washed the feet of the saints? Did you always help people who were in trouble? And were you ready to do good? At age 60, if you could look back on your life and answer those yes, 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 that was pretty impressive. Why would Paul set such stringent guidelines? This was kind of a new communal living type experience for people. And he was setting up these structures because you got to figure those outside the church would be watching. And they would realize, huh? I hit 60 years old, I can join those people. They're just going to take care of me. They'd convert for material benefit, not the spiritual necessity. Interesting, in the 19th century, missionaries in Asia dealt with this phenomenon. There was a a pejorative term, a derogatory term that was coined for people who would convert just for material gain. Rice Christians. People who... uh, I don't mean that to be offensive. That's the term that was designated. These would be people who would convert simply to get food, not because they recognized the need for Jesus. Now, with these past guidelines, I think Paul is simply laying out a groundwork so that the church didn't get freeloaders. I think that's fair. Paul tells Timothy, look at a widow's past. He also tells Timothy, look at their present. Look at how they're currently living. Verses 5 to 7. Now a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays day and night, asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead, even while she lives. Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. Widows, Paul asks, where is your hope? What does your life currently look like? Is there evidence that you are putting your hope in Christ through prayer? Now, I mentioned Plato and the Eastern religion saying 60 was the right age to retire into a life of contemplation. They weren't saying 60 was the right age to retire from everything. Hey, we've made it. We don't have to help out anymore. We've served our time, and now others can do it. I don't believe they were saying that, and I don't believe Paul was saying that. In fact, I think what Paul is doing in laying out these guidelines, he's saying, widows, prove it. Prove that your life is evident, that God is your hope, and that you're willing to pass on that hope to the church who is willing to take care of you. I like that so much I'm going to say it again. Paul is saying to the widows, prove it. Prove that your hope is in Christ and you're willing to pass that hope on to the church who is willing to take care of you past and present requirements that Paul sets up for widows to be on the support list for the church. Now, he also adds one more guideline, and this one deals with younger widows. Verses 11 to 14. Younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ, and they will want to remarry. Then they'll be guilty of breaking their previous pledge, and if they're on this list— they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business, and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children, take care of their homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them. By suggesting the young widows get remarried, is Paul just being a male chauvinist? No, no, he's not. He's trying to guard against something. He's trying to guard and protect these young women from sinful, lustful actions that would be seen outside the church of the young women inside the church. He's trying to guard against these young women becoming lazy gossips, meddling in other people's business that isn't theirs to meddle in. Paul is guarding against this. It's a good thing we don't deal with this in the church anymore. It's interesting to me that in discussing younger widows remarrying, it sounds a lot like the advice Paul told Titus when he was talking to older women as to what to teach the younger women, as to how to live. Just listen to it, Titus 2, 3 through 5. Similarly, Paul says, Teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others, learn to be gossips, or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely, to be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the Word of God. Paul is truly trying to protect the younger widows. And he's trying to protect the view of the church. That's why he says in verse 15, I'm afraid that some have already gone astray. Young widows, he says, remarry. One commentator writes that it is always true that the greatest handicap the church has is the unsatisfactory lives of professing Christians. And it is always true that the greatest argument for Christianity is a genuine Christian life. Paul lays out these guidelines in an effort to, well, fulfill that statement. May your life be the greatest argument for Christianity. I told you at the beginning that Paul often speaks very high and lofty in these big words that we can't understand. Theologically deep and rich, grandiose statements that make the mouths of theologians salivate and gives the rest of us a headache. Today he gives us some super practical advice that I think is just as theologically rich. It's just as powerful. Women, does all this sound fair? One day, if God allows you to become a true widow, would, would you like the church to care for you? And would you like the church to do its research to make sure you're worthy of that care? You think it's, care, uh, it's, it's fair that Paul would say, hey, young women, I want to guard and protect you guys, young widows. I want to guard and protect the image of the church as well. Do you think all this could be part of a Mother's Day desire to, let's do church together, let's all get along, and I won't say it out loud, but I'd like to be taken care of when I'm, when I'm older. I think this is great stuff, stuff with immediate application to today. So I encourage you today as you call your moms, as you celebrate with your moms, if you are a mom, reflect on some of these things. Allow it to simmer in your soul. Sound good? All right, I'm going to pray. Lord God, thank you for this sound advice. Thank you that Paul gives advice we can take and that we can apply immediately. God, I pray that you would help us as a family of faith to care for those you've put into our flock, to care for those you've put into our extended family. Lord, maybe in our, in our lives we don't, we don't have a widow And yet, there are in this family. So, I pray as First Church you'd help us care for them well. Lord, I pray for all the women in here, young and old, that they would be, that they would live lives that glorified you, and that their lives would point people to Christ. God, they need your help just as much as, as us men need your help. So, as we go from today, Lord, I ask that you would. Uh, continue to speak to us in, in practical ways. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.